open up to Matthew chapter 16. And barring tragedies, I hope that this week was good for most of you. For me, it was basically my last week on Christmas break. I have to go back to school. There's a registration on Tuesday for new students. Isn't that terrible that I only had a month or so off? <laughs> so I did a real fun thing this week. I watched Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Remember that movie? Yeah, that was, that was scary. That was uh, a lot of fun. I realized how, what an actress uh, Betty Davis was, you know. Amazing. So anyway. And then after that, we decided, well, might as well look at whatever uh, whatever happened to Baby Chain or whatever. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 16, and if you're visiting us, we welcome you to the President's class. And uh, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. And last week, we saw that uh, Jesus asked his disciples what the opinion of the masses of the people uh, was about him, and uh, it is reported that most of the people think Jesus is a prophet. And then uh, he asked them what they think of him, and Peter stood up and he said, well, uh, and he says this by divine revelation, he says that we believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, that, that God, you're God's king. And so we're going to pick up at verse 21 of Matthew 16, and Jesus is now is going to give us uh, further information about his ministry and mission as the Messiah King. Okay? <clears throat> because their understanding of Messiah is a little different than his. So we're in verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now what I want to do is I want to break down this verse for you a little bit and I want you to notice first of all that a shift is taking place. You see that? You can see it very clearly at the beginning of that verse. It says from that time Jesus began to show something. See that? There's a shift. He is now beginning a new phase of his ministry. Now what is it? Look what it is. Look what he's showing them is going to happen. From that time on, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now up until this time, he has been ministering mainly in the north, in Galilee. Now there's going to be a shift of emphasis, and he's going to head southward to Jerusalem, which is the city of the great Jewish kings. This is where the capital was, and the kings ruled from their throne in the past. And now Jesus is God's king, he's the Messiah king, and he is heading toward Jerusalem. I can imagine if they just heard that statement, because this is a summary statement, isn't it? Matthew's just summarizing what happened. I imagine Jesus said, now guys, we're gonna, tomorrow we're going to pack up and we're going to start heading toward Jerusalem. He says that right after Peter says, you're God's king. They must have thought, wow, he's going to set himself up on the throne and God's kingdom is going to start. And Rome's going to be defeated. Uh, but that's not what he does. Uh, because he says this. He says that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things. This is his prediction for them. This is what you can expect when we get there. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and I'm going to be killed. 
Now, this group of people are the leaders. Jerusalem is the power center for the Jewish nation. They're under Roman domain. They're part of the Roman Empire. And uh, the Jewish leaders are collaborating with the Roman government. And the Jewish leaders are benefiting from this collaboration. They have elite status. And they're on the payroll of Rome. And when Jesus gets there, and the people start hailing him as Israel's king, remember when he marches in the town in the great uh, Palm Sunday march, and they all hail him, son of David, you know, they call it, they say, save us now. These religious leaders get a little upset. And they're threatened uh, that their power base is going to be destroyed. And so... They're going to kill him. Now, Jerusalem is a place of death. Always has been. Later on in the Matthew Gospel, Jesus will say, uh, when he comes to the edge of the city, remember, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember when he says that? One of the things he says in that dialogue is he says, Jerusalem, who has killed the prophets. Anytime a prophet came to Jerusalem in the old days, and he went up against the power structure. They just got rid of him. But this time they're not going to kill a prophet. They're going to kill the Messiah. And that has to be a shock to the disciples to hear that Messiah, because they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that he is going to die at the hands of their religious leaders. Notice the word in verse 21, must. Do you see that? He must suffer and die. This is a divine necessity. This has been God's plan for Messiah all along. That Messiah will die. That's what they don't get. No one up until this point realizes that God's plan of setting up his kingdom involves the death of Jesus. It's a divine necessity. And this has to, in a sense, blow their minds. They can't wrap their, their minds around this. But then look what he says at the end of verse 21. He says, and be raised the third day. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because what you have in verse 21 is you have the word, be killed. He'll go to Jerusalem and be killed. That's man's doing. He will be killed. That's man's doing. They will put Jesus to death. But then look at the next phrase. Be raised. That's God's doing. He will resurrect Jesus back to life. So Jesus, in a sense, lays out God's plan for him when he and his disciples when he gets to Jerusalem. Now, the next thing you're going to see in verse 22 is Peter's private talk with Jesus. Just a little talk with Jesus. Yeah. So Peter decides to have a little private talk with Jesus. I love the way this opens up. Look what it says in verse 22. Then Peter took him aside. He says, uh, come, on, come on over here. We, we need to talk. And so uh, Jesus walked over there, and uh, he says, uh, he said to him, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. This shall not happen to you. 
Jesus said in verse 21, must die. Must die. That's what Jesus said. Peter says, shall not happen to you. And in the Greek text, it reads something like this. The meaning is something along this, this uh, line. Uh, the Lord will have mercy on you. You won't have to die. That's how it really reads. The, you know, the Lord will, the Lord's going to spare you. You're not going to have to die. Now, when you look at that, I think that we can say that, uh, so what Peter's doing, he's saying, first of all, you're mistaken. But I think Peter's well-intentioned. Not, not being mean-spirited. In fact, what has he done? He's called Jesus over privately. Uh, out of the earshot of others, he said, the Lord's not going to allow us that. You're not going to die. Because Peter doesn't think Messiah dies. Now, but he, he is going to set him straight. He's going to set Jesus straight. Now, I'm going to call that Peter's private conversation with Jesus. Now, look at verse 23. We're going to say, Jesus demonstrative rebuke. I love this. When I saw this, it just amazed me. Because what I want you to do is I want you to see it in your mind. Don't hear what I'm saying. See it in your mind. So it says in verse 23, He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, say. Now watch this. Here's, here's the scene. And I think it's going to give you a whole new perspective. Peter said, Come on over here, Jesus. We need to talk. And so Peter tells Jesus, You're not going to die. And then it says, Jesus does what? He turned. And now where's Peter? Behind him. Look what it says in verse 23. He turned and said, Get behind me, Satan. So he has Peter standing behind him. Now when he says, get behind me, Satan, what does he mean? It can mean a couple things. There's a couple options here as I've thought through this. He could be saying, get out of my sight. You're an agent of the devil. You're a Satan. You're an emissary of evil. Get out of my sight. Turning his back. Or he could mean... Get behind me. That's where you belong. You don't belong right here telling me what to do. You need to get behind me, and you need to be a follower. You need to be my disciple. You need to listen to me. Now notice, he doesn't call him the devil. Did you notice that? He calls him what? Satan. And that's, that's a title. That word means adversary. So he may not be saying that he's so much an agent of Satan as that he is... When you're doing this, you're my adversary. I just said, this is God's plan. I must die. And you're, you know, saying something opposite. You're, or in other words, you're an opponent. So, uh, either way, what you have is a picture of Jesus turning and now Satan behind you. So watch what he says in verse 23. Get me behind, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are hindering me. Uh, you're a stumbling block to me. That's what the word offense means. It means to stumble. So Peter, in a sense, from last week, goes from being a foundation stone to a stumbling stone. When Peter speaks,
speaks according to the mind of God, he's a rock of stability. Remember when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, God said, Jesus said, man hasn't revealed this to you, but who? My Father from heaven. Now look what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're a stumbling block. Why? Here's the reason why you are a stumbling block. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but what? Of the things of man. When he's speaking according to the mind of God, he is a rock of stability. When he speaks according to the mind of man, he's a rock of instability. He's not a foundation upon which you can stand, but upon which you would stumble. So Jesus is now rebuking Peter, and he does it in a demonstrative way where Peter calls him off privately and talks to Jesus, and the disciples can't hear. Jesus just puts on a big demonstration in front of everybody so they can hear and see what he is doing. Now he addresses, he turns now and addresses the disciples. He speaks to everybody. Back, he says he's back on Peter. He's probably now facing all the disciples. And uh, look what he says in verse 24. <clears throat> then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now notice he says, if anyone. That means without exception. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, there's two rules without exception. There's a couple requirements. And here's number one. You need to deny yourself. That means you need to uh, put a lid on your self-centered personal desires. They have to be put aside and God's will must take priority. Now, what's God's will for Jesus? To die. What's Peter's will for Jesus? To live. So he says, you have to put your desires aside. See? And you need to make sure that God has the proper, you have the proper desires, God's desires. And then notice he says, and the next thing you need to do is you need to, verse 24, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, you know what it means. When Jesus took up his cross, he had to carry that cross to the crucifixion site. A cross was an instrument of death. Whose instrument of death? The Roman government's instrument of death. If you defy the Roman government and you went against Rome's agenda, you were seen as a subversive and you'd be put to death. And the way they would put you to death is they'd put you to death on the cross and before they ever hung you on that cross you'd have to bear that cross and carry your cross to the crucifixion site. And Jesus says, if you want to be my follower you first of all have to not be self-centered but be God-centered and second of all, you need to carry your cross. He's saying you need to be willing to die just like I'm willing to die. And the only reason they would have to die is if they 
went against the Roman government's agenda. The Roman government said, Caesar is Lord. What would the Christian have to say? Jesus is Lord. Well, that'll cause you to be hung on a cross. That'll cause you to be executed. Don't see the cross as some spiritual thing. Just look at it from a historical standpoint for a moment. It was the way people were put to death when they went against the government. The government claimed a divine right to rule the world. It had a manifest destiny to rule the world. Who do Christians say has the right to rule the world? Yeah, God and Jesus have the right to rule the world. Well, that'll put you to death. The Roman Empire says everybody has a place in the pecking order, and here's where you are. But Jesus says, in God's order of things, everybody is equal. We're one in Christ. No Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. Well, you defy Rome that way, and guess what? You'll be put to death. So he says, you have to be willing to die. And Jesus is the example. And then he says, at the end of verse 24, he says, and follow me. And that is a present tense, which means, and you must continually follow me. You don't give up. When the pressure gets tough, and they say, unless you deny Jesus as Lord and say, Caesar, Lord, you're going to be put to death. Unless you're willing to stand firm and say, I'm not going to give in, I'm going to follow Jesus all the way to the end, even if it costs me my life. If you're not willing to do that, then you are not a disciple of this. All you've done is made a profession initially, but you're not a disciple. So, Jesus says, you need to just count yourself dead. You're going to be my disciple. By the way, that's where most of the disciples ended up. They ended up dead. Put to death by Rome. Except for John, and we think that he died. He was in the, on the Isle of Patmos, exile. Now, just an aside, this is what baptism is all about, by the way. You know, Baptists are always, we have back, the word Baptist in our name. We put a great emphasis on baptism. I personally feel we have a very weak understanding of baptism. Baptism was the way the early church pledged its allegiance to King Jesus no matter what. They said, I pledge my allegiance publicly in this baptism. And they went down in the water and that represented death and they said, we are dead to self and we are dead to the world and we're not concerned about ourselves, we're only concerned about God's agenda. And we come out of the water and we're going to live for him all the way to the end, no matter what. And in Baptist circles, all we do is say it's a profession of faith. It's sort of a profession of what God's done on the inside. Hey, that's not good enough for me. Because the early church, baptism really meant much more. So, now we have Matthew's audience. That's a rock book. I better do it now because when I get back to college I can't dance okay so now okay. now when I look at this passage I think okay well how about Matthew's audience these events happened in 30 AD but Matthew's audience are reading about these events 50 years later why would Matthew include this in his gospel for his audience? Well, they too must be under some pressure. 
They must be facing the possibility of persecution and neither death. And Matthew says, I want that in my gospel. My people need to read this, so they need to know what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. And if they're reading this 50 years later, a lot of the disciples already have counted the cost and have gone to death. But the death, there you go again. You need to get a new song. Okay. Now, so what we have is we have this, uh, yeah, this is one of the things that really, I think, stands out for me when I study scriptures, always looking at the fact that Matthew's describing events that happened in 30 AD, but he's writing them for people who are living 50 years later. And so there's an application. You have to say, well, why did he choose to tell that story in this way? And the reason he does is because these people are facing persecution as well. And guess what? There are Christians all around the world facing similar persecutions. We just happen to be fortunate that we live in a country where there's, at this point, freedom of religion. But thousands, I think it's something like 3,000 Christians a week are put to death for their faith in this world. And we don't even hear about it. Because the news media doesn't record it, that God records it. So now he gives this explanation. So he tells them what to do. Deny yourself. Start carrying your cross because it will probably end in death. And then continually persevere. Follow me. And now an explanation. Because whoever desires to save his life when that persecution comes, is going to end up losing it. He's going to not have eternal life. But doing a play on work. But whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Meaning that if you're willing to lose your life for the gospel's sake and not deny Christ, just as Jesus died on the cross, didn't give in to the Roman government, and God raised him from the dead, guess what? If you're willing to die for his sake, you will find life. God will raise you from the dead when the kingdom of God arrives in this forest. So, Jesus becomes our pattern. He's the one who died, and he was raised, and guess what? If we're willing to die, we too will be raised, and we will find that life that he offers in the ultimate kingdom. And then he says this, for what profit? And this is just a question. This is sort of like a rhetorical question. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And the answer is, what does that mean? The answer is zero. You don't gain anything. Uh, there's no gain if you trade that which is temporal to meet your own needs for that which is eternal. That's not a good trade. You have not gained anything. In fact, what you've done is you've lost You've lost resurrection life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The, the word soul doesn't mean your spirit. It just means, you know, exchange for the life that God has. What will a man give in exchange for this eternal life that God has for him? And it's amazing what people will trade their eternal life for. They'll trade their eternal life for pittance. They'll make a deal with the devil. It's a story of thousands, isn't it? A deal with the devil. The devil says, well, what do you want? I want to be famous. I want my name in the, you know, in the marquees and on Broadway and in Hollywood. He says, that's what you want. That's what you have. 
And there their names are. But guess what? That temporary gain ends up in an eternal loss. So Jesus is telling them basically, he's using uh, language of commerce, business language here. That's not a good deal. That's what he's saying. You would not be uh, making a good deal. You're, you're dealing with the devil. You're not dealing uh, with things the way they should be. Now he issues a warning. Look at verse 27. Because, because, and that tells you that it's going to refer back to verses 24, 25, and 26. Remember what 24, 25, and 26 are all about? It's about either getting temporal life, giving up eternal life, or being willing to die in order to have eternal life. Jesus says this in verse 26 to verse 27. Because the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. In other words, there's going to come a day, a judgment day, when everything is going to be evaluated. We've seen this in the past in Matthew, the wheat and tares story, remember? It's all done at the end. When Christ comes with the angels, comes in judgment, and then the evaluation is made, and he looks at you, and on this criteria, did you deny yourself, carry the cross, and follow him all the way to the end? That determines whether you have the eternal life, or you don't have the eternal life, or whether yours was just a profession of faith. So he is warning them, you better... Do what is necessary, or at the judgment, you will not get the reward for your works. And don't think of works in terms of you know, earning your salvation. It's not talking about that. Now, we get a promise. So verse 27 is the end result of verses 24, 25, and 26. Either reward or loss. Now verse 28, he gives us a promise. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. Because if verse 28 and verse 27 refer to the same event, now listen carefully. If verse 28 and 27 referred to the same event, then Jesus was wrong. Jesus was mistaken. Because what does he say in verse 28? Some standing there will not what? Die until they see the Son coming in the kingdom. Now what does verse 27 talk about? It talks about him coming with the angels, the judge, each person according to their works. It's talking about the second coming. Verse 27 is talking about the second coming. If verse 28 is talking about the same event, then Jesus was wrong. Was that right? Because the second coming hasn't happened. The judgment hasn't happened. The separation of wheat and tares has not happened. Jesus is wrong if, that mean, if they're talking about the same event. The great missionary Albert Schweitzer said Jesus was wrong. 
He wrote a book on it called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. Jesus was wrong. One of the great Baptist theologians, George Beasley Murray, who was principal of Spurgeon's College in London, England, said Jesus was wrong. He made a mistake. He thought that the end time would come during the lifetimes of the apostles. It was an imminent return, and he just missed it. He was wrong. Now, if Matthew's audience, I'm always bringing you back to Matthew's audience, who's living 50 years later, reads this, and if verse 28 and 27 are the same, they know the second coming hasn't hasn't happened, right? And all the disciples are dead, probably, except John. So they would know that Jesus was wrong. So what are we going to do with this? How are you going to handle this? There's only one way to handle it, and that says verse 28 does not refer to the same event as verse 27. Verse 27 refers to what? Second coming and the judgment. But verse 28 refers to something else. In verse 27, it says, He comes in the glory. Look at this. Three things. In the glory of the Father, with angels, and He rewards. In verse 28, it simply says, at the end of 28, he comes in his kingdom. He comes in his kingdom. And that may be something different than verse 27. So what are our options? If it's verse 28 is not talking about the second coming, what's he talking about? Well, this is why things get really complicated. There are a whole bunch of options. A lot of uh, Bible teachers say he's talking about the transfiguration. See in the next verse? Verse 1 through uh, 13. It's all about how Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigurated before the disciples. And they say, ah, they saw that. And that was a picture of his coming again. It's a picture of the second coming. It's a picture of the eternal kingdom. Um, A lot of commentators say that. There's a problem with that. When that event occurs... How many of the disciples have died? None have died. It doesn't really fit in with what Jesus said in verse 28, does it? He says, some standing here shall not taste death, which means probably the majority will. Or at least some will. So I don't think it's a transfiguration. Some people say this 28, Jesus coming in his kingdom, is a reference to to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. A lot of Reformed and Calvinistic uh, theologians believe that this is, refers to Christ's coming in judgment upon the nation of Israel, and then from that point on, you know, everything is different. Uh, I guess that's a possibility. A lot of Presbyterians believe that. More likely, and when I look at this, <clears throat> This could refer to his resurrection. Somebody has died by the time Jesus is raised. Who died by the time Jesus was raised? Judas Iscariot. So there is a death there. When Jesus is raised, he'll say at the end of Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Oh, he is a king, isn't he? So it could be referring to the resurrection. In fact, when you go back to verse 21... 
It says at the end of verse 21, he'll be raised the third day. So 21 would be related to 28. Could be the resurrection. And we do have somebody who has died. Could refer to the ascension. Judas has died, but the others are alive. They see Jesus ascending to heaven where he sits on a throne next to God the Father from which he rules the entire world. It could be a reference to them seeing him go up into heaven and taking his position at God's right hand on the throne of David. That's a possibility. Because notice in 28 it says, some standing here will not die until they see or they experience the Son of Man coming in his glory. It could be referring to that. It could be referring to Pentecost where Jesus sitting on his throne now receives from the Father the Holy Spirit and he pours out the Holy Spirit and he establishes the church and the kingdom is manifested through the earthly church. And that can be what it refers to. We're not sure. We're just not sure what it means. There is a parallel passage I want to show you. Look over at Mark 9 very quickly, how Mark tells the story. Tells it a little differently, by the way. Look at Mark 9, verse 1. Mark 9, and verse 1. It says this. Mark says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God, look at this, present with power. See? That's how they said it. You won't, some won't die until they see the kingdom of God present with power. And if it, Jesus is talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, where God's power and God's presence comes right in the midst of the church, then these apostles would have experienced the kingdom coming in power. And every time God showed up in one of those church services and took authority over sickness, or death, or sin, or a demon, the kingdom of God was manifested in power in their midst. So it may be a reference to what he's going to do through the church in manifesting his power, his kingdom power. And if that's the case, even today we can experience that. Because when God moves in our midst and we see people saved and sins forgiven and people healed through prayers, then God's kingdom is manifest. And we get a foretaste of what the kingdom is going to be like in the future. But the bottom line is that it is very difficult to pinpoint exactly what verse 28 is all about. And I cannot give an authoritative answer. So my choices are either Jesus was wrong. I'm not willing to go that far. Even though I go pretty far on some things. I'm not willing to go that far. So I think it refers to some present manifestation of the kingdom that most of the apostles will experience, but some will not. In this case, of course, Judas Iscariot did not. Okay, well, next week what we'll do is we'll pick up with the transfiguration of Jesus, and this is where suddenly the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, go up to a mountain with him, and then they have an altered state of experience, and there before them standing Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they're so excited they want to capture this experience. And they say, let's build three houses, one for Moses, 
one for Elijah and one for Jesus will capture their presence right here in our midst. And then God knocks them on, on their, onto the ground. And they're knocked out. And when they open their eyes, all they see is Jesus. And God says, this is my beloved son. You only follow him. Follow Jesus. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for a passage that is dramatic. Shows us the cost of discipleship. Tells us what's required to be a follower of Jesus. Help us, Lord, each day to examine our lives in light of this formula. Do we want what you want or do we want what we want? Are we willing to stand up for Christ no matter what the cost? Continue to follow him. pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who, for whom this passage becomes very important each day of their lives. Comfort them, Lord, as they have to make decisions. Lord, spare us from having to be in that same situation. Thank you, Lord, for our class. We pray for those families that have lost loved ones this week. Minister to them by your grace. Give them a special portion of your love. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you.